This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Podcast. What is this thing called? Recorder. We're rolling. Good morning. Good afternoon. How, what time is it? It is... Before 10 a.m. Lose track of time on the Red Road. Yeah. It's a very sunny, beautiful day today. You can bring the wampum out. Can what? You can bring the wampum out. Bring the wampum out? Is that a Mohawk saying? It's like a Haudenosaunee saying, yeah. Bring the wampum out and then all of the neighboring tribes run in fear? No. It's We're bringing they... the war wampums out? No, it just means that there's no um The purple the beads, look out. <laughs> Don't act like they don't scare you. <laughs> um, let's not rehash the Anishinaabek record of military victories against the Haudenosaunee. It's a very long list. <laughs> it is. That was sarcasm. That was not well conveyed. <laughs> so we are, uh, yeah, we have a nice drive in this morning, and we're going to ruin that drive by talking about... Land acknowledgements. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a lot of controversy right now because Pride Toronto used a very silly land acknowledgement in the parade. Yeah. And somebody posted it on Twitter. Yes. And social media, the world of social media exploded. Indian Twitter exploded. Mm-hmm. What was the issue, Courtney? So, I think the issue that happened was that it just wasn't a very... It was a land acknowledgement that didn't acknowledge any people. And I think typically, like, land acknowledgements have at least been historically couched in kind of like a, a nation-based assertion around jurisdiction in a land. Whether it's, like, jurisdiction that's not being exercised or being disrespected... Um, but the acknowledgement that was, uh, you know, posted on signs around pride. Let me read it. Let me read it. Yeah, read it. Land acknowledgement, all caps, bold. What is that? Let us journey together. Take a moment to connect with the land that you are currently standing on. Now introduce yourself spiritually. Build a relationship with Mother Earth that provides for all of our relations. No matter what part of Mother Earth our family originates from, we all have a relationship and responsibility to the land. Let's build a healthy relationship together. Chimiwitch, all caps. So, what has since been revealed by Pride is that this was written by an Indigenous person. So, from the Toronto queer community. And they wrote this. And Pride has basically thrown them under the bus and like weaponized that person's indigeneity against every person that's like critiquing or doesn't recognize this as being like a necessarily good thing and there's been some pretty good or i guess pretty clear critiques is that indeed like indigenous people necessarily shouldn't be the ones writing your land acknowledgements the land acknowledgements should probably be written by settler people who go through the trouble to educate themselves and understand their role in like displacement and dispossession and that that to me kind of says like you know why this 
landing homes were written by an indigenous person looks and feels different than what people are used to because they're not typically the ones that are giving the land acknowledgements. In the sense that like when I do land acknowledgements or if I'm asked to like open an event, um, which you have asked me to do, I typically say things like, welcome to the territory of my ancestors and our allies. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm never going to ask you to do that again. <laughs> so Why, you don't like being our allies? So, so let's let's step back for a moment because I don't have the same perspective as you. I think that I am less offended by this particular land acknowledgement and a little bit um, frustrated by the social media response. But let's step back for a moment and ask, what is a land acknowledgement? Because I think that there are really like three variants in my classification system. Mm -hmm. So the first is the sort of acknowledgement that we might do in ceremony. So this is like an indigenous specific acknowledgement. So when we are giving thanks, when we are acknowledging the land, it's usually in indigenous exclusive contexts and it's usually around ceremony uh, where there are no settlers. And we do this type of acknowledgement or we do this type of thanksgiving because we recognize that without the land, uh, there is no us. We, if we do not sustain and protect and, and express our gratitude to the land uh, and reaffirm our obligations and responsibilities, then we very simply die. This is not so much a political imperative for a land acknowledgement, but um, one of survival. So there's those types of acknowledgements. Mm -hmm. We'll put those aside. And I think that people... What I, I think what I see happening is a conflation of these types of acknowledgements. So anyway, the second type of acknowledgement is sort of in the middle of the spectrum, and you referenced it, usually like an opening. So an opening uh, often references the land, often acknowledges the land, but also uh, serves the purpose to bring ourselves all together. How do the Mohawks say it? Bring our minds together as one. <laughs> Uh, to put ourselves to a particular purpose, to, 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 to commit to a, co a co course of collective action, um, to, you know, welcome everybody, to, to, to thank them for traveling wherever our meeting is, etc., etc. And those can be in Indigenous contexts and contexts where there are Indigenous peoples and settlers. Um, they are somewhat political, we'll say. There's, they're, they're, they're in the middle. There's... They're, they're not exactly, in, they're not indigenous exclusive, they're not entirely political, they're sort of uh, the middle of the spectrum to, to open our discussions in, in a good way and, and, and make sure that we begin by acknowledging the things that are important to us. And then finally on the far side of the spectrum is the land acknowledgement or the territorial acknowledgement that is the political variant which emerged um, I think if my etymology is correct in Australia and then in British Columbia uh, in the, in the uh, 1990s especially and then grew during the 2000s and then sort of after the, the Olympics uh, amplified and became sort of commonplace across the, uh, across the country. So these are examples that happen almost exclusively in non-Indigenous spaces and are meant as a, they have a political imperative to remind settlers that they're on native land and to think about what their obligations are to those native people who are uh, the uh, rightful owners of that land and who uh, that land has been stolen from them. And, and as such, what are the obligations of settlers to repair that harm?
And as you say, the best of these types of land acknowledgements are in fact recited by non-Indigenous people who have reflected on their obligations and, and, uh, and done the research to understand whose territory that they're actually on. So what do you think about that classification system? Yeah, I think that's quite fair. I also think that we are one day going to die in this car recording this podcast because you say something dumb and I side-eye you instead of looking at the road. Well, tell me what I said that was dumb. <laughs> no, it was hash it out on the, it, in the podcast. It, wasn't. it was your, your re-bringing up of our fight around um, openings and uh, the Mohawk saying. <laughs> but that's fine. Oh, like appropriating yeah. the Thanksgiving address or, yes. bring, or coming together yes. as one mind? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't do that. Anymore. <laughs> when did I do that? I've done it once or twice. It's true. Listen, yes. <laughs> I was adopted by Mohawks. Sorry, captured by Mohawks. You came here willingly, and we can't get rid of you. I think that's the thing that I was told. They're like, he just showed up one day, and we can't get rid of him. Yeah, right. Here's the. Th- here's I've tried to leave multiple times. This is the thing too. And here you- I'm in this fucking podcast car with <laughs> wild Cayuga Mohawk. I. I uh, would like to point out that, like, you could have lived on the other side of Toronto and been closer to your territory, but you chose to be in Hamilton, closer to Six Nations than your own territory, where all of your friends and all of your people are. You moved to our territory, so... Hey, this is my territory, <laughs> by the way, my ancestors' territory. Um, all right, so th- this just okay. underscores how political land acknowledgement. And how, how they are so prone to misrepresentation and appropriation. And that if you're not doing the work to like actually like educate yourself, or understand some of these like very technical nuances, then you get things like Métis and Inuit representation in a political context outside of their traditional territory, where like settler classifications and you know, the definition of Aboriginal gets imported into other spaces without the kind of reflection on the fact that, like, there are Are different political realities. You know what I mean? Like, there's different, like, there's different layers to that. Are you talking about sort of pan-Indigenous? Yeah, pan-Indigenous. Incorporation into... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that the pride acknowledgement is probably a good example of the sort of pan-indigenate. Even though they sign off with Chimigwich, um, it is very romantic, pan-indigenous. Yeah. Um, the Chimigwich part was the only part that really upset me. <laughs> because it's like, that's the thing too, right? It's like, oh, you're trying to be as neutral as possible, but you're still defaulting to Anishinaabek. Well, maybe the person who wrote it, we don't know who the person who wrote it. I mean, Pride didn't exactly throw the person under the bus because they haven't named that person. And um, maybe they were they were Ojibwe or, um, yeah. So that could be. Yeah. And so the thing Nishnabimowen is... hasn't become the pan-Indian language or the language of pan-Indianism. Chimagwech has. As a thank you, yeah, I would say that, yes, it's the pan, yeah. It's true. Cree, the Kanana Skomitan. It's too hard to say yeah. for people. Otherwise, it would have been Cree. Can you just say hi hi? Hmm? I think that's what the Cree say for things. Hi hi? I have no idea. I don't mess with Cree. Yeah. <laughs> don't acknowledge them. A good rule. <laughs> A good rule of thumb um, is to never acknowledge Crees. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I went one time to a theater, and uh, I think it was, what theater was it? Buddies in Bad Times Theater? Yes. And they had on the land acknowledgement, Toronto is the territory of the Cree. Whoa. So, yeah, you can tell how, like, politically complex this is. And I think that people, too, that, like, are not comfortable and not familiar with, like, all of the political realities that we're living in would default to, like, a pan-Indigenous or a more superficial kind of acknowledgement rather than taking on, like, a strong political stance. Right. Or the accurate stance, which is Toronto as Haudenosaunee territory. Okay, okay, enough of this. So, are you, were you actually implying that whoever wrote the acknowledgement was probably not Indigenous or was Métis or was, no, like, I'm, I'm loose? Not talking, no, okay, I'm not okay, talking okay. specifically about, like... Because that, that could be a thing, too. Well, yeah. I mean... I feel like the worst land acknowledgements are people who are most insecure about their identity. With a, this is this applies to a lot of indigenous issues. You know, like the people that are more most forceful about sort of pan Indian ceremony are the like newly discovered indigenous people or the people who are you know questionably indigenous, and that sort of. Um, conservatism or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for the requirement that people do ceremony or, or, or acknowledgements or in a particular way come from come from those uh, individuals at least in urban spaces I think yeah and I think that like whether or not I think the questions that are being raised here aren't necessarily like questioning a person's indigeneity or not but like questioning Pride is an organization and their ability to like cultivate meaningful relationships with leaders in the community that do have the necessary knowledge and understanding and how the board prioritizes their relationship with indigenous people, right? Because the fact that none of the board members apparently knew that this was wrong or not good demonstrates that like they don't really consider indigenous acknowledgements as a part of their regular practice well, so like their own internal processes were not able to like catch this but also recognizing the fact that like as like big organizations or like you know any organizations working specifically with indigenous people because pride does work with queer indigenous people or purport to represent them and serve them they have an obligation to to do that work well, we don't know what Pride's internal processes were. Maybe, I mean, think about it. There are thousands of Canadian organizations, um, <clears throat> hundreds that, that serve the queer community. So I would say that like... So what if the Pride Toronto people were like, well, we want to do a land acknowledgement, but we don't know what to say or what it means. We need some help to do this. Let's create an Indigenous committee or let's bring in one of our Indigenous collaborators and have them write it and we'll talk about it. Maybe that happened. Maybe no, that well, happened. No. So the, the board, some of the board members were active on Twitter. And so one of the board members essentially said that like, this is something that like should have been done in a different way but it wasn't ever their priority and they never prioritized it mm -hmm. and so like there's a political connotation which is the responsibility of the board and they never took up that responsibility and never did it in a meaningful way so like they don't have like the board doesn't have this kind of like necessary oversight over like all of the signage or all of the technical pieces but definitely like the idea of like establishing a, a product that is political in the sense that like land acknowledgements in this context would be political, they had paid it no attention and actually were completely hands off in the process. 
So, okay, so the board... Which is how it got delegated to an indigenous person right. that is supposedly right. like the curatorial lead for the Two-Spirit programming right. at Ryan. Gotcha. So I have, you know, written about the harms of land acknowledgements, how land acknowledgements can actually be, be used to weaponize, or not weaponize, but validate settler presence and evacuate any obligation or politics. And this is a, just the clear, maybe the clearest example of that, you know, just like no political acknowledgement of Indigenous people at all, no, uh, uh, no obligation, no specific obligation um, by settlers other than to build a healthy relationship with Mother Earth together, whatever that means. Um, and so it's very much in line with this tokenistic approach to, to land acknowledgements. And I don't know if that's, you know, the, if the board was just uninterested in having this deep conversation about and knowing their obligations or, you know, there was this, uh, this, this, this gesture to, uh, escape from any, any actual obligation that a land acknowledgement, a, a proper land acknowledgement entails. Yeah, and I think this also cannot be, like, devoid from the backdrop of the pride movement in general and, like, the inherent settler colonialism that is happening within pride and the erasure of the political roots of pride and the movement of pride and, like, queer representation in society and, like, the fact that, like, the trans-black roots of a pride movement are completely removed to the point where people are like, pride isn't political. Well, pride is political, especially when you're talking about like the rights, the human rights of like historically marginalized people. Like that is, that's where we're at, right? So like not having that nuance is, is frustrating. I think one of the other frustrating things or elements of it for me was that like the kind of like um, PR spin that was put on it so, like, there wasn't really, like, I read the CBC article on this before I saw an actual acknowledgement or apology from Pride. I mostly used Twitter, but, like, there was none of that kind of, like, um, it wasn't, like, visible to me. I firstly saw that they were going to have this PR spin, and then, and then Pride claiming to be radically anti-racist in their response and so like their apology still didn't acknowledge the peoples that they were displacing they still refused to like undertake that work to actually acknowledge you know Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe and what have you and then they claim to be radically anti-racist anti-oppressive and that to me is like the most offensive part of this because you're taking this like social justice language that has been pushed for and advocated for for marginalized people and turning it on them to silence them and silence criticism of your multi-million dollar organization against the people you're supposedly serving who you just harmed mm -hmm. yeah that's a fair that's a that's a powerful argument uh about how what is a relatively minor thing can have or reflect um, pretty poorly on an organization and and uh, highlight the hypocrisy in some ways of that organization but I, I say that it's sort of a minor thing because you know we started this podcast we didn't even we didn't even start with the banter we just right, we went right yeah. into this um, we have been in the car for a bit <laughs> right we, we already did the banter something 
Um, I, like, there is a certain level of exhaustion, no? Like, I really am so fed up with land acknowledgments. I mean, they're so pervasive for me, and I know that this is not true in, in other contexts. You know, I think that it's different. And I've said this to you, and I don't know if I've said it on the podcast or not, but I, it's different when, you know, a white friend of mine does a land acknowledgement at the, at the dinner table for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever with his, you know, his white family. Like, that's impactful. That starts a conversation. That provokes people. That challenges their racism and interrupts the narrative of, of, uh, of everyday settler colonialism. I mean, that can be powerful, and it can be powerful in other contexts like maybe an Edmonton Oilers game a land acknowledgement is powerful I've never experienced it but in the Toronto context it's effectively become saturated to the point where I am so exhausted with discussions of of land acknowledgements you know I'm so I hear what you're saying and I hear your critique but at the same time like can we just knock it off well the thing that like is frustrating where like you, if you find yourself in complacency or like you've come to like the next step of kind of like an advocacy space to me it's like okay it's normalized or it's being co-opted how does that evolve then how do we as like you know settler colonialism is always adapting in its oppression of us how do we then critically think about how do we adapt and respond so like there are places where like land acknowledgments do not happen you know indigenous people face oppressive racism and violence they're not doing land acknowledgements but Toronto being like a very progressive space is getting to the point where it's being co-opted and used against indigenous people a full or not. progressive yeah. space yeah full but like if it's um, but if that's where it's at here then like what's the next step because like argue, like the goal is not land acknowledgements everywhere like the goal is like land back the goal is like resurgence so where does that fit on the this longer continuum of being resurged right yeah i think that exhaustion is tied to the symbolic nature of the land acknowledgement and without the material contribution that is supposed to follow a land acknowledgement that exhaustion just gets magnified right so it's like for me, I can see in real time how the symbolism is just becoming toxic. And uh, the land acknowledgement for me is in many ways self-defeating. You know, when I go into spaces now and someone starts with a land acknowledgement, I cannot help but um, feel that frustration and feel that anger because it is nearly always symbolic without that material contribution. So that is, I think, where my exhaustion comes from. Now, to your point about what happens next, that's the piece that we seem to be, uh, that seems to be, you know, well, obviously, it's it's what's not being followed through in the, in a Toronto context or an urban context or uh, uh, spaces that are, that that uh, the land acknowledgement has become saturated. Uh, and I think obviously, land back is an objective of the type of political land acknowledgement that we're talking about. Uh, but there's a whole spec. There's a whole. There's another level of spectrum. There's a whole other spectrum of things that we could be talking about, depending on where the land acknowledgement is recited. And this includes sort of another danger, because what I want to hear from people when they recite a land acknowledgement, I'll use the university context because it's where I hear it most often. 
is the provost or the president of the university saying, this is the territory of the Mississaugas of Credit and the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabek and Huron and blah, 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 blah. And we are committed to recruiting and paying the tuition for 30 students from each of those communities every year. This is the territory of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we are committed to training and bringing in faculty or, or graduate students and, and hiring them in, in tenure track positions from this, these communities. This is how many. Um, this, is, this is the territory of the blah, blah, blah. And, and we are committed to creating curriculum, uh, designing research that benefits those communities. This is the territory of the so-and-so nation, and we are committed to co-managing the land that we own with them. Uh, and then finally, you know, land back. But uh, I think that there's a spectrum. So we, so we want to hear those things. I want to hear those things to make, to make the land acknowledgement material and to meaningful uh, beyond the toxic symbolism. But then it can almost, then, it, then, then it, the, the danger is that it evolves into a sort of padding, uh, a, a self, uh, 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 you know, sort of a, sort of a like, self-promotion, self-gratification. Yeah. It's, it's like, here's our land acknowledgement here, are all the great things we're doing for Native people. And so the, the danger is like, okay, we're done. Yeah, and I think that's the point where, like, Native people step in and say, well, no, 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 here's how we take it further again, right? It's this constant, like, push. Constant escalation. It's constant escalation. It's constant, like, thoughtfully thinking, like, okay, where do we go from here? What is the next step? What are, what are we doing now? And, like, taking a moment to, like, you know, take a status check, right, and think about where we are, but then pushing it forward and, like, actually doing that. Because, like, you know, if people do that, then... That's, a, I think, a useful strategy for us to employ as people who are trying to liberate ourselves. And that there's, that there's that kind of piece, right? And if we get to the point where, like, you know, in five years, there's just this, like, you know, settlers are making it rain and we have, like, land everywhere and, like, <laughs> you know, different programs and different initiatives, then fuck yeah, our communities will continue to, like, thrive and, you know, evolve and redefine what governance and what control looks like for us and then settlers will destroy the planet with climate change and then it will all be ours right. as prophecy has foretold. <laughs> we just have to uh, figure out how to survive that time too. Nanabo Joel will take us under their wing and help us adapt. Yeah. Um, start, start stockpiling squirrels. Right. So, you know, just thinking about it, it is such a useful device though, you know, it, it, like despite my exhaustion with it and despite it being like the lowest form of, you know, responsibility from settlers, it, it's, a, it's a helpful device to really think critically about, well, what, what do the obligations of a land acknowledgement actually mean? So in some ways we have done the work, all of this outrage on social media and all of this anger and op-eds and CBC podcasts, whatever, do allow us to use the land acknowledgement as a device to get these things that are owed to us and that and that, and that we want and I, and I suppose that's part of the reason that they're so um, uh, useful but also contentious political yeah so um, here's okay so what are so for all the settlers that we have eavesdropping on our podcast what should we tell them about like so if you're doing land acknowledgements they need to be accurate Right? To the people. Yeah, the okay. Actual, like, Let's pause for a second here. Accurate. Accuracy. Accuracy. There are so many damn <laughs> acknowledgements that are inaccurate. There are more land acknowledgements that are inaccurate than there are accurate. 
Now, I'm not going to claim to be Alan Corbier or Rick Hill or anything, but I know a little bit about Toronto Indigenous history. And Toronto is not Métis territory. No. Toronto District School Board. Toronto is not Cree territory. Toronto is not Inuit Inuk territory. Toronto is the territory of the Haudenosaunee, preceded by the Anishinaabek, preceded by the Huron, uh, all of whom have committed to sharing these lands, right? Except maybe the Huron. Maybe the Huron. Uh, I mean, like, do we share? No. But also... I well, guess, this is this okay. raises a good point, because right now you ask people about the dish with one spoon... You go, you go and ask Chief Laform about the dish with one spoon, or, or Chief Hill about the dish with one spoon, and they'll tell you that it's dead. Well, also, I mean, I also agree with Alan Corbier in the sense that it was never at the Treaty of Niagara, and like there are the dish with one spoon. Yeah, and there was like a, and Sue Hill would also say this as well that it was probably told, or the story was probably recited to Anishinaabek at one point. Wrong. But it's a story from the great law and it's like a Haudenosaunee wampum belt it's one of the oldest Haudenosaunee wampum belts so if it was used it would have probably been in a Haudenosaunee attempt to spread the white roots of peace and enlighten Anishinaabeks but I don't know necessarily whether Anishinaabeks themselves would say they ever agreed to that there are other metaphors and other belts that exist between our nations and but the dish with one spoon has a great story and is a great brand and branding and marketing matter more than historical accuracy in Toronto these days. It is a very powerful metaphor and a very powerful symbol that Anishinaabek have shared and have their own articulations of that are very similar to the Haudenosaunee, incorporated prior to 1701 in a relationship between the two, and then reaffirmed in 1701 at the Great Peace of Montreal. Uh, it is debatable at 1763 or 1764 at the Treaty of Fort Niagara whether or not it was invoked, just like the two-row wampum. John Burroughs thinks one thing, others think another thing. Um, but it had been recited and continued to be used between Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek. The last recorded uh, pre-Confederation rec recitation was by Chief William Yellowhead. Um, who blamed the uh, Eastern Mohawks, the Cataraguas, of emptying the bowl. Um, and then so we had to create more firmer boundaries that would be symbolized by fires. And each of the fires represented a, a, a corner of our territory. It was actually, you know, for Anishinaabek, we didn't really practice rigid borders. Um, I guess that's a bit of a generalization. But anyway, there was, in 1854, this, this Mohawks, you stay on that side of the fires and we'll stay on this side of the fires and we'll ask permission if we, if either of us want to enter into this side of the bowl. So it, it was interesting that the bowl was kind of fractured in 1854. Anyway, the point of all this conversation is to refute your revisionist history of the dish with one spoon. It's true, I'm a problem but, but the dish with one spoon as a metaphor, or, or sorry, the dish with one spoon invoked uh, in the land acknowledgement for Toronto is deeply problematic. Now, ahistorical, maybe not. Problematic, absolutely yes. Uh, fetishizing the treaty, 100%. Uh, ignoring contemporary indigenous existence, for sure. So that's a problem. So accuracy, historical accuracy is complicated, but it can be pretty clear. I mean, they're really just a handful of Indigenous people, First Nation people in Ontario. 
You know, there's Meshkigowak, there's Haudenosaunee, there's Nishnabek. It's basically it. Some Delawares. Yeah. Who else? Some some Hurons? A couple Hurons. Are there any left? Wendats. A couple Wendats. You did not. <laughs> well, um, let's see. So it's not yeah. that difficult. It's not that difficult. Métis will say that uh, Sault Ste. Marie is, is Métis homeland uh, mm -hmm. or Treaty 3 area, but in both of those cases, I believe that they were welcomed in by Anishinaabek, mm -hmm. so it's questionable. What about the Métis and Um I think that is also questionable. I think that there were uh, French, you know, Champlain was hanging around, um, uh, Penetanguishene, and I think that people... The historic community, the, there was never really any continuity of a historic Métis community in Penetanguishene, even though there were no doubt uh, French indigenous uh, traders, maybe even Métis uh, traders, but a cohesive community that was there long term and could be, could say that this was their traditional territory, I, I don't believe so. Um, okay, so we got hung up on accuracy. We're trying to tell yes. settlers something here. So accuracy, so it takes work, right? So this conversation, we've just had a five, seven minute conversation about the dish with one spoon and, and being accurate, and we can't agree. Two people yeah. that know our histories. So it takes work, settlers. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta do work. You've gotta figure out who the Anishinaabek are, who the Haudenosaunee are, yeah. and... Uh, but also like understand the fact that there are indigenous experts that do understand this history. You know, they themselves should be empowered and looked to to actually speak with authority on some of these things, right? And if there are discrepancies, then those arguments should be had by people who like have done the work, have you know gone through the archives, understand our history, have done that work, and have an informed debate about it, as opposed to like empowering people that have like very little technical understanding. Because what that does it is, is that it assumes that there's no indigenous competence or like technical expertise in this area and that to me is like a form of erasure but it's definitely a form of racism mm -hmm. to think that we don't understand our own history or have people who are like very technically um you know well that we have historians yeah historians well you know? i think what happens is settlers like to find a native person and then that native person speaks on behalf of all native people yeah. even though they don't have the credentials to do it and then settlers will say oh but isn't all knowledge held collectively mm -hmm. by all people uh, it's a very postmodern perspective, but Native people are going to be like, fuck no. Mm -hmm. There yeah. are people qualified in medicine. There are people qualified in language. There are people qualified in, in uh, 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 history. It's not like your everyday Native person that you can pull off the street, give them an honorarium and a title, and say, now do our land acknowledgement for us. <clears throat> so... Which also is beholden on to indigenous people themselves to like recognize that, understand our own societies and how they function. And if you're offered that space or to do that, to say no and to not take that on. Like there's very, you know, very few people that have like, I don't know, what would you call it? Humility? But like that understanding of themselves <laughs> to then say like, actually, no, this isn't my place or like, I don't feel informed to do that or it's I can't true. do that. Well, right? a lot of people, a lot of native people have turned into reconciliation hustlers. You know, they get mm -hmm. some, they get some, they get the reconciliation bucks, they get the acknowledgement, they get the credit and they're held up. They're the only native person in an organization or working with a group of white people and they're just affirmed and reaffirmed. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm not saying that all, you know, 
this this is a widespread phenomenon, but it is it is somewhat common that that yeah. there are individuals disconnected from communities doing this work uh, without humility, um, and it's all it's all sort of held up by by the uh, appreciation of settlers. Yeah. So. Which is what? Well, and they're known within the community too, right? I think that we would, Some of them, you know, for sure. Some of them are known within the community. Some of them aren't. Sometimes you stumble across someone and you're like, oh, you're getting paid bank and you don't talk to anyone from your own community or anyone in this actual community. You're just like making shit up and like getting paid for it. And it's like, and like, and those people typically engage in like a lot of lateral violence too, right? Because part of them maintaining their personal power is displacing the opinions of other indigenous people, right? They're very unethical. So this has turned into a little bit of a rant about uh, reconciliation hustlers. So, um, <laughs> well, I think we may, we're making two points. So the yeah. first point is the accuracy thing. And then the yeah. second point is, um, you know, indigenous knowledge is held collectively and by the community, it's true, but individuals that you bring into your organization or your university or whatever must maintain those, they have to have that connection, they have to have that relationality, um, be, otherwise what happens is is this, uh, this problem that we see where people sort of make up land acknowledgements and tell settlers what they want to hear because they're disconnected from that political history and cultural knowledge. Um, so don't put it all on the single indigenous person. Um, and you know, this is a little bit of a tricky one because we're asking settlers to, we're assuming a lot of settlers here. Yes, that's true. Uh, that they know the difference between indigenous historians and just like your average, yeah. your, your average Nishnamic who may not have that knowledge. So anyway, um, don't put it all on the single token. That's what yes. we're trying to say. Don't, don't put it all on the single token that you... Don't put it all on the single native person you've tokenized, okay? Yes. That's point number two. So to avoid tokenization, the thing that you can do, too, is, like, empower that person to have time and space to establish a network around them or, like, uh, you know, reach out to have contacts and understand that, like, if you're asking, you know, you might, you might only have one indigenous person, but you should be empowering that person to do work in a good way as well, which includes, like, maybe different timelines or, more, you know... Or, or know, what if they don't things. want to do it, you know? Everyone always has the right to opt out. Uh, have sure. you... Well, that's not how it works. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe this is mm -hmm. not true for you, but I have been asked to recite a land acknowledgement, pressured, felt pressured, mm -hmm. and I have done it. Mm -hmm. on, yeah. On occasion. You did that to me. I said, welcome <laughs> to the, my territory and, the, and my ancestors and my allies. We had a conversation about it. <laughs> But they can, especially in South... They can feel, like, almost humili borderline humiliating, you know? Yeah. So the tokenization, there's another element of the tokenization. Don't, oh, don't ever make the native person do the land acknowledgement. That's your third tip. It's always be a white person. Always. Not always, but most of the time. You know, you yeah. can have black, black, brown folks doing land acknowledgement. Um, it should be meaningful. If you're going to, like, as Hayden said, say this is a material thing that we're doing in, you know, in acknowledgement of Indigenous people, that would be ideal. I think don't, like, reuse them. You know, if no you scripts. something different. No yeah. scripts. Yes. No, be accurate. Don't tokenize. Don't make Native people do it. Uh, make it meaningful. No scripts. Mm -hmm. um, what else? So we're definitely like pro still doing them. 
We're not saying cancel lending arrangements. I don't know, man. I can't bear going into another meeting with like four white colleagues and they start the meeting with a land acknowledgement. I'm like, what the, f what are we doing here? And the whole, and the meeting is about hiring another Indigenous faculty member or something like that. I'd be like, I like, we're, we're, we're doing the material thing. We're doing it. We're doing it. Okay, let's, let's, get, let's get rid of the land acknowledgement. I want to know if settlers do this with no Native people in the room. <laughs> is Are a land doing... acknowledgement recited if no Native is there to hear it? <laughs> That's the true question. <laughs> Speaks to its performativity, doesn't it? Yeah. I imagine that there are some woke settlers that, uh, yes, are jockeying for most mm -hmm. anti-oppressive in their group of white settlers that are reciting their land acknowledgement. Yeah. And then somebody else does, a, oh, you forgot this part of the land acknowledgement. Did you hear Hayden and Courtney's podcast? We shouldn't <laughs> be doing... I, I hope that there are conversations, that there are board meetings, there are meeting rooms right now of white people talking about land acknowledgement politics. Uh, I doubt it, but... Well, then at least we're kind of like reverse trolling them. You know, colonialism has trolled us for a long time. Let's troll them back a little bit. <laughs> um, like I said, I think land, land acknowledgements are kind of like voting, you know? It's like... Coming up next on the Red Road. <laughs> yeah, next we're gonna, next week we're talking about voting, I guess. Uh, but they're sort of like that, you know. They like they take minimal effort, but they're seen as like this super big deal. Mm -hmm. They're ultimately very impa impactful in a very minimal way. Um, Sound like Nishtabeks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Listen, speaking of <laughs> speaking of understanding your own history, you need to go back to the books. I know. To read some more I Alan Corbier. I told you, I'm a propagandist. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. Do we have more tips? We are, there's many, many. There's, there's other tips. There's one thing also that, like, settlers can do outside of land acknowledgements, and that's to never email Give us or ask us any back. questions. <laughs> okay, yes, true. But I'm in a little bit of a different situation, and I've always felt this way, like, People are always like, don't make Native people do all the labor and don't yeah. make Native people teach you. But I'm, a, I'm an educator, so it's sort of my job. And mm -hmm. I have this privileged position and the salary and all that sort of stuff. So yes, you, you can have, email me once yeah. in a while. If only if the request is, you know, going to meaningfully uh, yeah. contribute to Indigenous life or land. As E. Puck and K. Wayne Yang would say. Um, yeah, I, don't email me, don't at me. <laughs> don't send me Brittas, don't. Brittas? The freaking, like, the number of white people after my tweet about Justin Trudeau and viral oh, that are like, right. just buy a Brita, that solves all the water insecurity issues that just right, people right, have. Right, right, right. Can like, you imagine land acknowledgement? Our land acknowledgement, we recognize it's the territory of the Haudenosaunee and Six Nations and we commit to buying 28,000 Brittas. Um... Six Nations would burn the Brita factory to the ground. Our band council isn't even doing anything, and they occupied our band office. Like, that's how intense mom people are. God. Oh, my God. There's also a blockade in my First Nation. Finally. There's, you know... Well, there have been multiple... We have some very activist uh, Nishnabek who are out there blockading all kinds of things. We've reclaimed multiple parks. We just don't mm -hmm. brag about it like Mohawks. Anyway... Um, <laughs> We're at the, it's a very feisty at the episode. end of the Red Road. The well, shit? I don't know. You know, yeah. I get, talk about land acknowledgements, and the shit goes I'm sideways. <laughs> um, we have now entered Nishnabek territory. 
Yeah, okay. Um, all right, well, that's it. You'll, uh, we'll catch you next time on the Red Road. Any final comments? Give the land back to Haudenosaunee. Okay, right. Goodbye. <laughs>